0: Peter Greer and Chris Horst authored a book entitled Mission Drift The Unspoken Crisis Facing Leaders, Charities, and Churches. The author said, We chose the word drift intentionally. It has the image of slowly, silently, and with little fanfare carrying you away to a new destination. It's not dramatic. And yet, anyone who spent time on a boat of any size knows it happens. In their book, they provided several examples of organizations that have drifted away from their original purpose or mission. World renowned Harvard University, founded in 1636, originally only employed Christian professors, their focus was on fulfilling the stated mission of instructing students to know God in Jesus Christ. But today, this school has no ties to its Christian roots. In 1987, the president of the university acknowledged the school had strayed far from its original mission, becoming a completely secular university with no option of turning back. Howard Pugh and his family were strong Christians, the Pew family made a lot of money in the oil business. When they desired to be generous with their wealth, they set up a foundation that ultimately became the Pew Charitable Trusts. Howard Pugh wanted all donations to only be made to organizations that were faithful to the gospel. But after the founder died, his, this charitable foundation drifted significantly, funding organizations that Howard Pugh and his family would have never approved, such as Planned Parenthood and many Ivy League schools. George Williams first started the Young Man's Christian Association as a Bible study for displaced men in London. The core of this group was centered on learning about Christ, eventually training and commissioning over 20,000 missionaries. But as the organization grew and expanded to other countries, the focus became all about health and fitness with no reference to Christ. Christ. In 2010, the organization officially dropped three of its four letters to become simply the Y, removing any remaining ties to its Christian roots. Some may view these changes to these organizations as positive, but many view them as negative, as the original mission, which they strayed from, was good. What about the church? Who determines the mission? What was the original mission of the church? And how important is it that we remain faithful to the original mission? Next week, we are going to begin a three-part sermon series going through the book of Leviticus. If you're tempted to think Leviticus is boring, I hope that you will be pleasantly surprised as we spend a little time in that important book. And after we go through a three-part series in the book of Leviticus, we are going to begin a sermon series going through the book of Hebrews, which will last 24 sermons. Normally, we like to preach through books of the Bible. We like to preach through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, as we go through the books of the Bible. God gets to set the agenda. His word gets to set the agenda for the sermon each week. Occasionally, we like to do a standalone sermon, a topical sermon. And this morning, our topic is, what is the mission of the church? Next year, our church will hit the 10-year mark as the church began as a Sunday evening service in January of 2013. So as we approach the 10-year mark in the life of our church, we thought it would be helpful to revisit the mission of of the church not so much that we can ensure that we are remaining faithful to the original stated mission of restoration road church but so that we can make sure that the mission of restoration road church is remaining faithful to the mission given to all churches by Christ of course the church exists for the glory of god everything we do is meant to point to his greatness and demonstrate that He is awesome, and there is no one like the Lord. When we talk about the mission of the church, we are referring to the task given by God for the church to accomplish in the world for his glory. As we consider this important subject, it will be helpful for us to differentiate between tasks or particular areas of deployment that the Lord gives to individual Christians on the one hand and the task the Lord gives to his church on the other hand. For example, an individual Christian might have a a sense that they are to use their time and energy for a specific task, a specific ministry in the community. A Christian might sense a call to engage with serving people in need through the Pregnancy Resource Center, or helping people who are poor and in need in the community. There might be a Christian who has a sense of calling to help other Christians with their finances. There may be a Christian who has a strong calling and desire to help communities in poor parts of the world get access to clean water. There are many examples that we can give of Christians discerning Callings or particular areas of deployments where the Lord is leading them. And this is a good thing. These are all good things whereby we can glorify the Lord. We all want to prayerfully consider how the Lord can use us in our individual lives to serve people for his glory. We also need to differentiate between the commands the Lord gives to all Christians and the task the Lord gives to the church to carry out together. The Lord commands all of us to love our neighbors and even to love our enemies. The Lord calls us, commands us to walk in his righteousness and justice as we render right judgments, show no partiality and care for the poor, widows and orphans. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, In in this same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are all commanded to do good works and bring glory to God. Christians have opened thousands of pregnancy resource centers, built hospitals, dug wells to provide clean water, established medical clinics, founded organizations to help children in poverty, opened soup kitchens and provided countless meals, built houses for the homeless, provided all kinds of resources and materials for refugees, and I could go on and on. Again, these are all good things that are pleasing to the Lord that we pray will increase and multiply. We want to be rich in good works as we all seek to walk in obedience to the Lord's commands. While we want to encourage these things, we want to encourage everyone to love their neighbor, to walk in the good works that the Lord has prepared for us beforehand. And we all want to pursue particular areas in our lives, individual areas of deployment where the Lord can use us. While we want to affirm these things, we want to differentiate between these things And again, the task that the Lord has given to the church for us to carry out together. What is the task that the Lord has given to us as the church to carry out together? In order to gain clarity on this, we'll consider the mission of Jesus, the necessity of ongoing gospel proclamation, And finally, the mission of the church. We'll begin with the mission of Jesus. We read about the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And I think it's important to see what is emphasized at the beginning of his ministry. The beginning of his ministry set the tone for the rest of his ministry. In verses 14 and 15, we read, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. His ministry began with a proclamation. He had good news to announce. He had a message to preach and his aim in proclaiming, announcing and preaching was to persuade He announced that the saving rule and reign of God was being established through his arrival and ministry. The gospel of God is the good news that God saves sinners in Jesus Christ and welcomes them into his kingdom so they can enjoy his presence, his rule, and his reign, and his steadfast love for all of eternity. Jesus proclaimed the good news to persuade sinners to repent of their sins. And believe the gospel, so they will enter his kingdom and enjoy eternal life with him as their king. A little later in Mark chapter 1, Jesus went to be alone for a time of prayer. And crowds of people were looking for him, probably because he had healed the sick and cast out demons. When the disciples found him, they told him that everyone was looking for him. And his response Is revealing. He did not say, Well, if everyone's looking for me, then clearly they have needs. Let's go. Let's go back to these people who are looking for me so that I can meet their needs. No. Instead, in verse 38, he responded, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus told them, I came out so that I can preach and proclaim the gospel. Proclamation of the gospel was primary during his ministry. In the passage immediately following the beginning of his public ministry, verses 16 through 20, Jesus called his first disciples. He said to Simon and Andrew, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. He called these men as well as others, to follow him so that he could teach them, so that he could instruct them, and ultimately so that he could send them. He wanted them to be his disciples, to be learners, to sit at his feet, so to speak, to learn from him and then be equipped to go and be fishers of men. In other words, to go and catch others to catch others so they too could become disciples of Christ. He wanted them to learn from him so they could in turn go and teach others. So at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus proclaimed the gospel broadly, calling people to repent and believe, and he invested his valuable time in discipling a small group, teaching them to follow his way, obey his commands, and equipping them in turn to reach others. Gospel proclamation and making disciples were priorities at the beginning and throughout his ministry. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus was preaching to a large crowd in the house in Capernaum when a group of friends brought a paralytic to be healed by Jesus. The house was so full, it was so packed that the only way this group of friends could bring their friend who was paralyzed to Jesus was to create an opening in the roof and lower him down in front of Jesus. Clearly, they brought him to Jesus with the hope that Jesus would heal him. They had heard that Jesus had the power to heal people who were sick, to cast out demons. And because they had heard this about Jesus, they probably thought, this is his chance. This is his chance to be healed from this horrible condition. So they brought him to Jesus. They created an opening in the roof. They lowered him down. And in verse 5 we read, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. I wonder what the paralytic was thinking. That's nice. That's a nice sentiment. Thank you for saying that. But that's not why I'm here I'm here to be healed. I heard you can heal people. I'm in need of healing. That's why my friends lowered me in front of the roof. I'm sure that he thought Jesus was missing the point. But Jesus made a point to address his sins. Whatever the man thought his biggest problem was, Jesus believed that his sins were a bigger problem. And addressing his sins was a more important matter. In verses six and seven, we read now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? To their credit, they were right that only God can forgive the entirety of someone's sins. Only God has the authority to, to say to someone whom he just met, all of your sins are forgiven. They were right about that, but they missed the fact that Jesus possessed that authority in himself. They failed to see that Jesus had the authority to forgive this man's sins so listen to what happened next jesus said which is easier to say to the paralytic your sins are forgiven or to say rise take up your bed and walk but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins he said to the paralytic i say to you rise pick up your bed and go home and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus was compassionate. He was moved by compassion. Clearly, in his ministry, he did many good deeds, many good works to help people in need, whether they were possessed by demons, whether they uh, were sick or ill, whether they were poor, or hungry, whatever the case, Jesus was moved by compassion, But did you hear the specific reason he gave for this healing? But that you may know that he has authority to forgive sins. Rise, take up your mat and walk. In other words, the healing served as confirmation of his authority to forgive sins which he believed was the more important matter. Think about it in this way. What good would it be to the man if Jesus healed him on that day, but did not forgive him of his sins? What would it matter right now? Because that man, though he's not alive on this earth in its present form, still exists. What would it matter to him if he was healed on that day but is now experiencing eternal torment? Clearly, Jesus recognized the bigger problem was the need for his sins to be forgiven. Did he have compassion for the man's suffering? Of course he did. He was always moved with compassion and pity. His compassion led him to address the man's biggest problem first. His need to be forgiven of his sins. One of the purposes of the miracles that Jesus performed was to confirm his authority and thus demonstrate the truthfulness of the gospel he proclaimed. Going a little further in Mark's gospel, we see that the disciples were a little bit slow to understand some of the things Jesus taught them and modeled for them. They especially had a hard time coming to terms with the way Jesus was going to accomplish his work as the Messiah. A little further along, two of the disciples made a request of Jesus. James and John said, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They were thinking about following Jesus not in terms of how they could humble themselves and serve and give themselves up for the sake of others. They were thinking about Jesus in terms of how can we get glory for ourselves? How can we get glory? How can we get power? How can we get honor for ourselves? In that moment, Jesus was a means to something else. When the other disciples heard about this request, they were angry. Probably because they didn't want James and John to get a leg up in a way that they wanted to get a leg up. So Jesus had to teach them a lesson. In Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45, we read, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus taught them an important lesson on humility and servitude. To be a follower of Jesus means that you do not lord your authority over others, but seek to humbly serve others. The disciples were not to seek power and glory, but rather serve with humility. After all, their master came in Humility, And he described the reason for his coming in terms of serving and giving his life as a ransom for many. Of course, Jesus was pointing to his death as a substitutionary atonement, whereby the ransom of his life was paid to God the Father. When Jesus went to the cross, he did not only die an excruciatingly painful death, But he also absorbed the wrath of God for the sins of his people. Jesus died as a substitute. He gave his life so that we could receive the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus proclaimed the good news knowing full well that he would pay the price for the sins of all who repent and believe In Him. In their book, What is the Mission of the Church? Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert write The mission of Jesus is not service broadly conceived, but the proclamation of the gospel through teaching, the corroboration of the gospel through signs and wonders, and the accomplishment of the gospel in death and resurrection. When Jesus came into the world, he came to address our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is that we have sinned against God. We have rebelled against him. We are deserving of judgment. Just like the paralytic, we might think other things are our biggest problem. We might look into the world and see other problems as the world's biggest problem. But our biggest problem is that apart from God's saving grace, we are at enmity with our creator, the one who made us in his image to know him, to love him, to enjoy him, to glorify him. So God the Father sent Christ into the world with a mission to save his people from our sins that we might be reconciled and restored To him. Any other problems that he might fix will be temporary fixes that won't really matter in 10,000 years. But our biggest problem, which he came to solve, will matter for all of eternity. So Jesus came to save sinners through the proclamation of the gospel through teaching, the corroboration of the gospel through signs and wonders, and the accomplishment of the gospel in death and resurrection. The second thing we need to consider is the necessity of ongoing gospel proclamation. When we consider the ministry and mission of Jesus, we need to understand that the geographical region of his ministry was smaller than the state of Maine. He didn't go very far. His reach was not very wide, but even from the Old Testament scriptures, we know that the Lord's plan has always been to save a people for himself from every nation. In Psalm 86, 8 and 9, we read, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Do you hear this? All the nations shall come and worship the Lord. We're given a, a picture in the Old Testament scriptures of a people set apart from God from every nation or every people group on the earth. In the book of Revelation, we are provided a picture of the fulfillment of this in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, the great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and the plan is to save sinners from every people group. But to be saved, they must believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus, they must hear the gospel. While Jesus proclaimed the gospel in many towns, a need remained for the gospel to be proclaimed after he completed his ministry during his short life in a very small geographic region. And he spoke of this before his death. Mark chapter 13, verses 9 and 10, he told his disciples, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Nations. So after Jesus completed his work and ascended into heaven, there remained much work to be done. The work that remained was the proclamation of the gospel throughout the world in every generation. The need remained after he completed his ministry on earth. And that is where we get to point three the mission. Of the church. After his death and resurrection, but before his ascension, Jesus appeared to the disciples multiple times and gave them a task or a mission, if you will. He had preached the gospel, he had corroborated the gospel, and he had accomplished the gospel. But very few people, relatively speaking, had heard the gospel. So what did he tell his disciples? What was his instructions to them? What were some of his final words before he ascended into heaven? In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said to them, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples" "...of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." This is the passage that is commonly referred to as the Great Commission. In this passage, Jesus commissioned his disciples. He gave them a task or a mission As the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations, the mission required going. The disciples were called to go and make disciples. Jesus had told them he was going to make them fishers of men, and in the Great Commission he told them how they would do this. They would make disciples of others, which of course would require the work of evangelism and gospel proclamation. If someone is going to become a disciple of Jesus, they must first hear the gospel, either one-on-one from another Christian or in the context where the gospel is being preached or proclaimed. They must hear the gospel in some way, shape, or form so that they can respond to the gospel through repentance and faith. If someone is going to become a disciple of Jesus, they must hear the gospel and believe. When Jesus commanded them to baptize the new disciples, he implied that their work in evangelism would be successful. They would see people hear the gospel and respond by putting their faith in Christ. And so he told them, when this happens, you need to baptize them. Everyone who becomes a disciple is to be baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One thing that is noteworthy is that the word name is singular, meaning the author used the word name, singular, rather than names, plural. One might think it makes sense for him to say, baptize them in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but that is not what he said. He said, baptize them into the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is one place where we see the biblical teaching that there is one God who exists eternally as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We refer to this as the doctrine of the Trinity. There is one God who exists eternally as Father, Son, and And spirit. And so a disciple of Jesus is to be baptized into the name of our triune God. Baptism is the affirmation of a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people. Evangelism precedes baptism because a person must hear the gospel, believe, and be saved before he or she can be affirmed as a Christian and publicly identify him or herself with Christ. But when a believer is baptized, the task is not yet complete. Jesus commanded the disciples to baptize believers and teach them to observe all that he commanded, which describes the ongoing work of discipleship. Those who have been saved by Christ and united to Christ must follow Christ by obeying His commands. At the end of this commission, Jesus said, "I am with you until the end of the age." The fact that Jesus commanded them to make disciples of all nations and told them he would be with them to the end of the age point to the fact that this task was not exclusively for the disciples who stood with him on the mountain that day. After all, they could not possibly reach all nations, and they died well before the end of the age. Rather, by giving this mission to the disciples who became the apostles of the church, we recognize that this was the mission that Jesus gave to the church. This is the mission given to the church to be carried out in the context of the church, here is a helpful way that Kevin and DeYoung and Greg Gilbert summarize the biblical teaching on the subject. The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey His commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the head of the church. He is our chief shepherd. The church belongs to him because he bought us at a price. He alone has the authority to determine the mission of the church. We do not want to be guilty of trying to improve or update the mission. Nor do we want to slowly and inadvertently drift away from and lose sight of the mission. We want to be faithful to carry out the work that Jesus has given us as a church. So how do we do this? I want to share with you a few ways that I think we are to be faithful in the mission that Christ has given to the church. And here they are. We gather, we scatter, we prioritize, we partner, and we pray. We gather. If we are going to be faithful to carry out the work of the church, we must gather as the church, as we are doing now. This is not merely a religious ritual. It's not something that we just do because that's what Christians do. Everything we do when we gather on the Lord's day is intentional. We sing songs that are rich in gospel truth, pray gospel-centered prayers. We devote time to listening to the word preached and the gospel proclaimed. We partake of the Lord's Supper and baptize believers. We teach children the gospel as we help them to understand God's word. In doing these things, we keep the proclamation of the gospel and disciple-making central. What we do when we gather is essential to carrying out the task the Lord has given us. By gathering and participating, we are affirming the necessity for the ongoing proclamation of the gospel and the need to continue to learn how to obey all that Christ has commanded. Every local church is an outpost or an embassy for Christ's kingdom and the work he is doing in saving a people from all nations for his glory. It's easy to think little of what we do here in our local church. It's easy to think little of what we do when we gather in comparison to what's happening in the community, in the state, in the country, in in the world. It's easy to think that what we're doing is not that significant. But we need to remember that we are but one of many congregations doing the same thing. When we gather, we are participating in the work that the Lord is doing all Over the world. By God's grace, He has included us in His glorious work, which He is accomplishing through His people in congregations like this across the globe. So, how do we be faithful in the mission that Christ has given to the church? We gather. Secondly, we scatter. The work of the Great Commission requires going. After we gather at the beginning of the week on the Lord's Day, we scatter by going into the world to live our lives as disciples of Jesus. We want to be encouraged, strengthened, and equipped when we gather in order to go into the world to live as disciples and make disciples. The work of disciple-making happens as we are going about our daily lives. And we all have opportunities in our daily lives. We all have opportunities for the work of evangelism. Maybe it's in your place of work. Maybe you have coworkers with whom you have a relationship whereby you can share the gospel of Christ. If you are a parent, your primary work of evangelism is with your children, regularly sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Perhaps you have a friend who is not a Christian, or maybe a family member, or a neighbor. Do not overlook the fact that God has sovereignly placed people in your life who have not yet believed in Christ. And you may be the best chance for that person to hear a clear presentation of the gospel. Do not associate gospel proclamation only with public preaching. Gospel proclamation takes place in one-on-one conversations when you clearly present the gospel to someone who is not a Christian. And again, do not assume that someone in your life who is not a Christian is not a Christian because they have clearly heard the gospel and rejected it. Very few people have a clear understanding of the gospel a question that I have used for the sake of evangelism is this. I ask a person, if, they, if someone were to ask you, what do Christians mean when they talk about the gospel, what would you say? How would you answer that? How would you help someone understand what Christians mean by the gospel? And I like to ask that, that question to people to see if they understand. And it also opens the door for me to then sh- share the gospel when they don't understand. Very few people can answer that question. It is shocking how few people can answer the question, what is the gospel message? Even people who have spent time in church have a hard time answering that question. If you have people in your life who are not Christians, it is most likely the case that they have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel. And you are the one who is there to proclaim the gospel to them, to help them hear so that they can hear and believe and be saved. We have opportunities for evangelism every week. We need to have the eyes to see and the boldness to speak. We also have opportunities in our daily lives for disciple making. Again, this happens as we are going along the way. We have the opportunity to participate in discipleship in the context of formal, organized ministries. We do this, for example, when we participate in, in a Bible study or a small group, or when we commit to meeting regularly with another believer. We have these opportunities in these contexts that are, that are planned, that are organized so that we can in, be intentional about growing as a disciple and by helping others to grow as disciples. And so we want to recognize that when we when we do these ministries, our aim in these is to be faithful in the task the Lord has given us. We don't just do Bible studies because it's a good thing. It is a good thing. But this is the, one of the ways that we live out the command that we are faithful to the task the Lord has given us to make disciples. But discipleship also happens in many informal and unplanned ways. And we also need to be looking for these opportunities, these informal, unplanned ways that we make disciples as we are going along the ways. It's an encouraging word to a brother or sister in Christ and a conversation that comes up. Maybe they need you to give them perspective. Maybe they need you to help them point out an area of of sin. Maybe they need a word of comfort. You have opportunities with brothers and sisters in Christ to make disciples in informal ways as you are going. And so we want to look for these opportunities when we scatter. We want to look for these opportunities for evangelism. We want to look for these opportunities for disciple making as we are going. So we gather and we scatter. Also, we prioritize. There are many good things we can engage in as a local church, and we always want to consider how we can better love and serve our community. As we do so, we must prioritize those things which most directly help us be faithful to the unique work that Jesus has given us. We want to ensure that we are not simply doing good works that may have a benefit that is temporary while not prioritizing addressing the greatest need that people have, which is the need to be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God the Father so that they can enjoy Him for all of eternity. That means the decisions we make regarding our ministries and budget and so on must be examined in light of the Great Commission. Everything we do together as a local church must be examined in terms of how is this helping us be faithful to proclaim the gospel and make disciples of all nations? So we gather, we scatter, we part, we prioritize, and next we partner. We also look for opportunities to partner with other churches and ministries for the sake of the mission that the Lord has given to the church. By God's grace, we have had wonderful opportunities to partner with like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ. We do this, for example, through the Three Strand Network. The Three Strand Network is a a small group of local like-minded churches that partner together in part to be faithful in the work of the Great Commission. We help each other out. We support each other. We share resources. We work together to try to plant new churches. In other words, we feel like if we partner together, rather than viewing ourselves in isolation, we as a local church, when we partner with other like-minded local churches, can be increasingly faithful in the work of the Great Commission. So we want to partner together with other ministries, with other churches, to be faithful to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, and to help start new churches. We also partner with specific local churches outside of our network. For example, we've supported uh, Redemption Church in Portland, Oregon, where Pastor Virgil Brown is the church planter and pastor of that church. We want to help support new churches when they get started because it is challenging starting a new church. But we know that starting new churches is an incredibly effective way to be faithful in the Great Commission. It's an incredibly uh, effective way to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. And so we want to help new churches. We want to help other churches, not just be focused on our local church. And so by God's grace, we've been able to help Radiant Church up in Eagle River and Redemption Church in Portland, Oregon, and we want to continue to look for opportunities to support new churches being planted through prayer, through finances, and even possibly through sending people. We also partner with other organizations that are faithfully doing this work. Multiplication Network Ministries is a ministry we support that trains church planters, thousands of church planters all over the world to plant churches that are making disciples, we work with Nine Marks, which is providing all kinds of resources to help churches all over the world with the work of evangelism and making disciples. So we are so thankful for these organizations that we get to joyfully partner with. We partner with individuals. We support different people and missionaries going to different parts of the world because we know that they are taking the gospel and there's gospel needs in other parts of the world. So it is a wonderful joy to to partner with individuals who are going to other parts of the world to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. Again, it is a joy to partner with brothers and sisters around the world to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. By God's grace, we will continue to do so. So we gather, we scatter, we prioritize, we partner And finally, we pray. Brothers and sisters, let's pray that God will grant us to be faithful to the task, to the work, to the mission that he has given us. We need to pray that we don't become too distracted or too busy to do the most important work that he has given us. How sad is it when we as a a church are so busy that we're not actively engaged in proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. So we need to pray that Lord will grant us to be faithful. We need to pray that God will give us enthusiasm for the mission. We need to pray that we don't become apathetic or discouraged, but we need to pray that God will give us enthusiasm, be faithful with this mission so that we are looking for those opportunities for evangelism and making disciples. We need to pray for specific people, We need to pray for brothers and sisters in Christ, that they will grow and mature in the faith. One of the things, one of the most important things, responsibilities that you have as a member of this church, if you are a member of this church, is to pray for your fellow members. Pray for their continued growth in Christ. You can also pray for specific people in your life who are not Christians. We have resources in the back that can help you think about this and pray for people, this Little resources that's called Who's Your One? Who's your one person? Your one person in your life who's not a Christian who you are going to pray regularly will become a Christian. Who are you praying for? What non-Christian are you praying for? Brothers and sisters, we should all be doing this. We all need to be doing this. If we are going to be faithful in the task and the work and the mission that the Lord has given us to proclaim the gospel and make disciples, we need to be praying for non-Christians in our lives. We need to be praying regularly that the Lord would use us to present the gospel to them, to proclaim the gospel to them. We need to pray that the Lord will grant them repentance and faith. This is an important way that we all actively engage in the mission that Christ has given us. Brothers and sisters, we want to be faithful. We want to be a faithful church. We want to understand the work that the Lord has given us, the task the Lord has given us to do together. We want to be faithful in this. We want the Lord to use us to proclaim the gospel so that we can see sinners come to faith in Christ, so that we can see them baptized and enter into the life of the church and grow as disciples of Christ. We want the Lord to use us to this end for his glory. So let's remember, let us remember the mission that Christ has given us. And let's pray that God will grant us to be faithful in this mission. Let us keep our eyes on Christ and let us be faithful to do the work that he's given us. As we gather, as we scatter, as we prioritize, partner, and pray, may we be faith, found faithful in the mission that Christ gives to his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have saved us in Christ Jesus. and We thank you that you have joined us to your church. We are members of your body, the body of Christ. And we pray that we will faithfully live out that reality as as members of this local congregation. We pray you'll help us to remember the task, the work, the mission that you have given to the church in Jesus Christ. And We pray that you'd help us to be faithful in this work. We pray that you'd give us enthusiasm for this work. We pray that you'd help us to make the most of the opportunities we have. Lord, we pray that we will be a people who faithfully proclaim the gospel and make disciples for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.